Hey, welcome to Life Church. We pray this blesses you and empowers you for your week ahead. We hope you enjoy this message. Be with you guys. I got a towel today because I thought it was going to be like 35 degrees, right? And yeah, now it's a bit awkward because not really that sweaty yet, but we'll see how it goes yet. And uh, first thing is that, guys, England, British people, what is happening with the weather today and tomorrow? And then I thought that by leaving Africa, I was leaving the heat. If I want hot, I'll go back to Africa, right? It's always hot. And this is like, man, it is so hot. But I know we're going to enjoy it. And great family fun day um, coming up. But today, what I want to do, guys, is uh, we're going to have a little bit of fun with this. And I hope it's going to be fun. That's a bold statement to make at the start of a sermon. And that's because there are two methods of communication in Christian churches, right? They're very, very general, very, very broad. But there are two main methods. The first one is preaching, right? There's preaching, and preaching is basically when you are proclaiming, that's where preaching comes from, you are proclaiming the good news of Jesus, that's preaching. And then there's teaching. Teaching is not the same as preaching. Teaching is when you get more involved in a text and you kind of work through it, or you take a subject or a topic and you teach, you unpack it, right? There's preaching and there's teaching. And today I'm teaching on the gospel which is what you proclaim and preach. So you're kind of getting a two-for-one special because I'm gonna be preaching and teaching by necessity. So if you, if you were like, man, I don't know if I should go to church today, look at that. You're getting both preaching and teaching for free. Amazing, fantastic. And uh, Bibles will be helpful. So if you got them with you, pull them out. We're gonna have text up on the screen, but we have got a lot of ground to cover in the time that we've got together. And I don't wanna keep you here over time. So we're gonna dive straight into this. Not many funny stories or anything like that, but we're going to go straight into um, today's sermon, which I've called The Greatness of the Gospel. And if there's one thing that we walk out of here with at the end of this service, if there's one thing that I can give to you and one thing that I can show you, I want it to be that the gospel is great. It is not just a nice idea. It is not just in addition to the stuff that we do as the people of God, but the gospel is great. And the reason that I'm really passionate about this, I'm becoming way more passionate about it as I go through the work that I do, which involves a lot of teaching um, and research and uh, digging into scripture and theology and all these wonderful things. The reason that I'm going, I wanna go so hard on this is because we live in a world, as you know, where there are counterfeits of everything. All right, anybody booked any flights recently to go anywhere? You guys are so lucky, right? Now what happens when you're booking a flight, okay? It used to be that you would just go to like the website direct and you'd click on a flight, you'd select it, and it would go through on this website. It was all trustworthy. No one ever tried to steal your money or to, you know, get something out of you and then not give you the service that you were paying for. But these days, these days, you gotta like Google every single website that you come across. We were looking at flights for something coming up um, at the end of this year and 
Um, we're going to see my wife's family uh, eventually at the end of this year, which we're really looking forward to. And it is so expensive to travel right now. It is so expensive. So I'm out looking for a deal. Like I am hunting that down. And I go into this app and it gives you all the deals. But you are not able to just click through something anymore and go book and pay. Because all of these sites that are offering you such a good deal, and they stand there and they say, this is so cheap and it's gonna give you what you want. It's gonna meet all of the requirements and you pay next to nothing for it. What happens when you click book and it goes through? Nine times out of 10, right? Somebody's on the other side. Are they taking the money and you're never seeing that ticket ever? It is not in the post. It's not coming to you. There are counterfeits of everything, every service, every product, even of people, right? Social media has taught us just because somebody looks like something and sounds like somebody doesn't mean that they are. So we're in a counterfeit world. Now, counterfeits in the church are even more prevalent. And counterfeits of the gospel have been around as long as the gospel itself has been a message. Not everything that looks like the gospel is the gospel. Not everything that says it is of Jesus is of Jesus. And the first century church understood this because the apostles who were leading them told them As the problem was arising, Paul and Peter and John and James and Jude, who was an apostle as well, they were equipping the church to identify and stand firm against the mistruths and the strategies of the enemy. See, there are a lot of things which use the same ingredients but lack the distinction of the power of the gospel. And that's what we're gonna dig into today. So I want us to start Galatians chapter one, six to 11. Um, there's, gonna be, there's gonna be quite a few texts up on the screen and I'm gonna reference some, but uh, they all work together to give us this clear picture. And my goal here, as I said, is to show you the greatness of the gospel by first defining simply what the gospel is. Now I know that there's a lot of us here who have grown up in church or we've been Christians for a long time and we're like, Matt, I know the gospel. It's all good, all right? This is not your cue to take a nap for the next 20 minutes, okay? Stay with me here because what we're gonna find out is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not only for people who don't believe in Jesus. As we follow him, we need the gospel every single day because it is great. So Galatians chapter one, verses six to 11. Paul writing to the church in Galatians where he's gone, he's proclaimed the gospel. People have responded to the gospel. They have been saved and redeemed and they are now children of God. And Paul sends them this letter. He starts off, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, that's Jesus, who called you in the grace, or sorry, God, who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to what? Okay, right. We're gonna try that one more time. Are turning to a different gospel. Paul says, not that there is another one because there's nothing like Jesus, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Quickly skip over that part. As we have said before, so now I'll say again, 
if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, i.e. the one that the apostles were given, that they then were sent out by God in the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim, that's written in our scriptures, right? Let him be accursed. Paul goes on. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I just wanna look at a couple of verses here briefly and start off with this idea that Paul mentions when he says a different gospel. He's very quick to then say not that there is a different gospel. And the reason for that is because only the good news of Jesus has power to save us, right? If something does not have the power to save us, it, it can't rightly be called the gospel. But what he's talking about is this distortion of the gospel. And what was happening in the Galatians church was that there were groups of people who were trying to take the message that the apostles had brought and they were adding Jewish practices to the message of Jesus and saying, it's great that you have been saved by grace, but now if you really wanna be a Christian and you really wanna impress God and you really wanna be great in your faith, well, you better follow the law of Moses as well. And they were adding to the gospel. So Paul says, this is a distortion of the gospel. Verse seven, to iterate the importance of this point, Paul says that even if an angel from heaven appears before you and then preaches a gospel that is contrary to what the apostles of Jesus have given, he says, don't believe it. And what's really interesting is that some 1,500 or 1,600 or 1,700 years later, a guy named Joseph Smith is walking through the woods and an angel appears to him. And the angel says, Joseph, Every other church in the world for the last 1,700 years has been wrong. Or 1,800 years, I forget. They're all wrong. And here is the real gospel. And he gives them this, these words inscribed on these golden plates and the religion of Mormonism was born. Side note, Paul writing in the first century said, even if an angel appears from heaven, and gives you something contrary. And what happens some 17 or 1800 years later, an angel from heaven appeared, so Joseph Smith claims. Paul's onto something here, right? This is a man that we should be paying attention to. He seems to know what he's talking about. Very trustworthy guy. So if an angel from heaven preaches a different gospel, it's not true. And Paul goes on to explain that the idea of false gospels is directly correlated to what? Verses 10 and 11, a desire to please people, not God, right? What, what happens when we proclaim the good news of Jesus? Right? The world is offended. The world is resistant to it. And I, my, I don't know about you, all right? I'm not gonna lump you into this because I don't know where you're at and I don't know how you're wired in this regard, but my default setting is that I want everybody to like me, all right? It's really hard to like, you know, in a workplace, for instance, to be honest about stuff that's going wrong because I'm like, listen, guys, I've got bad news. 
but I also really want you to like me, so I don't really know how to do this. And, and that's a me issue, right? It's not everybody else's issue, that's a me issue. Because what I'm learning in my faith that the world does not bother to teach me is that I need to get over the desire to keep everybody around me happy. And I gotta do whatever makes God happy. What pleases God, that's what we're after. The gospel is pleasing to God, but we know it's easier to give people when we want them to like me more. It's easier if I give everybody what they want and not what they need. Hello. (laughs) Revelation coming down. (laughs) If that's the angel from heaven, guys, do not listen, okay. (laughs) Tell him no. All right, so this raises a question for me. What is it then, if we got these false or distorted gospels, what is it that sets the gospel of Jesus apart? Or rather, what makes the gospel great? And to answer that question, we need to know what the gospel is. Now, one of the things that really, really, really troubles me is the number of times that I speak with people who believe in Jesus and we have a conversation about the gospel. And at the end of the conversation, somebody says, you know, I've never thought about it like that. And the reason that it bothers me is because I think we are so comfortable with the idea that the gospel is just for people who do not know Jesus. But we need to daily remember what the good news is because we never stop needing it. So what is the gospel? Well, if we go to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us a cheat sheet, a cheat sheet of what the gospel is. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11. Now, he's writing to the church in Corinth and he's specifically writing to them because the church in Corinth were very influenced by Greek philosophy. And the Greeks said it is nonsense, this idea that you will one day be raised from the dead. The Greeks said, when you're in the ground, you're in the ground, that's it. But the Christian message was, Jesus did not stay in the tomb, he rose again. And if he rose again, we're gonna rise again. And when he comes back, guess what? We're all rising again. And that's what eternal life is. So Paul is writing, sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11. Um, That is not the one we're talking about, guys. Sexual, no, we're not going down that route today. That is not for me to preach. I will give this to you um, and you can follow in your Bible. So Paul is trying to address the truthfulness of the resurrection, but in order to do that, he includes the gospel message. Why? Because the gospel saves us to something. It doesn't just save us from something. It saves us to something. That's what Paul says. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Those scriptures are the Old Testament prophets and the law, right? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers 
at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, this is Paul speaking, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. A couple of things really important to note here, but this is a summary and a really good summary of Paul's understanding of the gospel. The first thing that we know that Paul doesn't mention here is that Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life on this earth. How do we know that? Well, the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us that. They were there, they were eyewitnesses. But more importantly, the belief that Jesus is the savior and redeemer of the world indicates in Jewish thinking and understanding and theology that he has to be the only person who has never sinned. And that he has to be perfect. Because the Jewish understanding was that nobody who is part of the problem can fix the problem. So Jesus has to have lived this perfect life. But what Paul's really interested in is this. Jesus Christ died for our sins. Jesus Christ was raised to life. And that event was witnessed by many hundreds of people. It happened. And we find that in the death and resurrection of Jesus, something takes place by which we are not just saved, but according to Paul in verse two, we are being saved. Salvation is not a one-time thing. It's not just that, boom, I'm done, take it off the box and I go and live my life how I want to. You are being saved daily, right? And it's not because you lose your salvation overnight. It is because God is doing His work to make you a holy people set apart for His glory that when Jesus returns, His church will be ready for him. We're being saved. We're being saved. It's implying that the gospel is not just for the sinner, but the believer too. What's really interesting, we see verses 9 to 11. Paul himself experienced this gospel. He experienced it because Paul, in this, these verses, he knows his unworthiness. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be like Peter and John and James. He acknowledges who he was and he owns up to what he did. What did Paul do? Well, when Paul was Saul, before he had this revelation of Jesus, he not only persecuted the church of God, but he denied Jesus as Messiah and he hardened his heart towards God. We read in Acts, Luke tells us that when Stephen the evangelist, the first martyr of the church, was stoned. He was preaching the gospel to a crowd that killed him. And right at the end, we're told that Saul was there and Saul approved of Stephen's martyrdom, the killing of him. Saul hardened his heart 
to God and to Jesus. He hardened his heart to the gospel that the apostles were preaching. And in short, Paul was an enemy of God and his people. That's what he was. He was an enemy of God and an enemy of the people of God. And yet we read from this man who was an enemy of God and at war with God to such a degree that he hunted down the people of God and threw them in prison. These words, by the grace of God, verse 10, I am what I am. Now the temptation sometimes to take that and to say, well, that's fantastic. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I remember when I was in seminary, we had a group come in and uh, this group interpreted that verse as saying, well, whoever you wanna be and whatever you wanna do and however you wanna live, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I, I should not be, by human terms, an apostle. I was at war with God. I persecuted his church. I hunted down these believers. I despised the good news. God was my enemy, and yet by the grace of God, I am what I am, an apostle. Not just an apostle, but the apostle to the Gentiles upon which the foundation of the church is established. Scripture tells us there's 12 foundations of the church. They're the apostles who follow Jesus plus Paul. He is an apostle who has established this foundation by the grace of God. He doesn't say it's by my good works. He says it is by the grace of God. You see, the power of the gospel is to take everything that you were and transform you entirely to make you a new person. And it is not we who do this work, it is the grace of God in us. This is what scripture calls a new life in which we now have peace with God. The Apostle Paul's greatest work in the New Testament is arguably the letter that he wrote to the church in Rome. It's called Romans, very creative name. But he painstakingly, in the letter to the Romans, outlines the problem of humanity and God's response to that. Romans is what led Martin Luther, the reason that we're all sitting here as Protestant Christians, to come to an understanding of the grace of God and begin the Reformation. Romans is what John Wesley, at a meeting in Aldersgate, read and said, my heart has been strangely warmed and the revivals of the 18th century broke out because of Wesley and Whitfield and Edwards over in North America. Romans is a powerful book. And what we see is that God is responding to creation in Romans as both judge and savior. He's judge and he's savior. This towel's really handy. When we speak, I don't know if you've ever found this, right? When we speak about an infinite and sovereign God, Sometimes it's really hard to describe him and to explain him. And there's things about God that we just can't wrap our heads around. So I'm gonna give you a theological term here because that's what I do. Um, I love theology terms, right? So you want write this one down. It's really, really gonna help you talk about God. It's called the attributes of God. Everybody's like, yeah, we already knew that, Matt. <laughs> Come on, Matt, you're not that clever. The attributes of God, right? And there are communicable and incommunicable attributes meaning that there are some things that God is which we share. We can love 
and we can be kind and we can have mercy, but there are things about God that we do not share because he is God, right? I cannot do the things that God can do, especially when it comes to salvation. So what we see in Romans is we see these two attributes come up time and time again. God is just, but God is merciful. And God's not like 50% just and 50% merciful. No, no, no. God is always just. And God is always merciful. So, so Paul, throughout Romans, the whole book, he essentially is posing this question. How does a God who must be just also show mercy to the creation on which his justice must come. If he doesn't do one or the other, well, is he God? And Paul answers this. Romans chapter one and two, he gives us the human condition, the world that we live in, and he explains, if you've ever wondered why is the world such a crazy place? Why do all these bad things happen? Why is it so messed up? Just go read Romans one and two. And then in three and four, Paul tells us how God responds to that as justice and mercy. And it's called grace. It's called grace. And then chapter five onwards, he tells us how we live in response to this justice and mercy. Romans 1.24, Paul sums up the human condition. He says, God gave us, hum, human beings, he gave us up in the lusts of our hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because we exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. The problem that Paul identifies is that we have chosen ourselves, the created beings, over God, who is the creator. And what's God to do with that? How is God to respond? Well, <clears throat> what we see is that after Paul describes the hopelessness of the human condition, he reveals God's holy and just response. Only God can redeem his creation. Fallen creatures, I cannot redeem you, all right? And you, as lovely as you are, cannot redeem me. But we see in Romans 5, 1 to 11, this is the last text that I'm gonna give to you, right? So this is, this is like the good stuff. This is what we've been building up to. Romans 5, 1 to 11, after Paul goes through two chapters of explaining how unable we are to save ourselves by all the good things that we can do, Paul starts this chapter like this. Romans 5, 1 to 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace. We have? Peace. peace with whom? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And he goes on, but we don't have time to dig into that right now. There's a couple of things to notice. First of all, we are justified, Paul says, by Jesus. We are justified by Jesus on the cross. At no point does Paul say, by your good deeds, by your self-improvement, 
by your hard work you have made peace with God. It is the gift of God through Christ. And what is the result? The result is peace with God. I don't know about you, but there are moments throughout my life where I have felt as though I am at war with God, right? We can often think and we can often believe that if life isn't going a certain way, if we're praying for something and it's just not happening, right? If we're, if we're being mistreated consistently, if our dreams aren't coming true and everything that we hoped for and we declared and we decreed is not coming to pass, well, maybe God's just mad at me. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God has no anger towards you ever. He has made peace with you through Jesus. Two things here, two things. First of all, that is good news. That is good news for sinners, right? That is good news for sinners. And there are people today in this room and watching online who need to be told that all the stuff that you are searching for to make yourself right with whoever you think God is, is found in Christ. It is not your work that makes peace with God. It is faith in Jesus who died and rose again. That is what makes peace with God. And that happens through repentance. Repentance is confessing the state of our hopelessness. I am nothing without God. I am lost without God. I am broken without God. I must confess that and repent means to turn away from choosing myself over and over and over again and to say, Lord, I choose you who have saved me. That's what repentance is. But the second group that needs to be reminded of this are all of us who know that we're right with God. And yet even though we're right with God, we carry on in our sin. It is the most disheartening, awful feeling. When as a Christian, I sin. You're not, you are not, you are not yet perfected. And you cannot allow your current failure to live up to a standard that you are setting that is unattainable in a fallen, broken world to make you believe that God is withdrawing His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness from you. You did not purchase your salvation. You are not the one who has to keep it going. What does Paul say? You are being saved. Jesus is saving you. We don't walk under condemnation. There is Romans 8, chapter one. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? I have stopped choosing myself. I have stopped choosing my sin. I am now fixed on Jesus, but this world is broken. This world has fallen. It is hostile to God. I'm gonna mess it up. And I don't want to, but I do. But when I do, the Apostle John tells us we have an advocate with the Father. And when we confess our sins to Him, He is just to forgive us because He is the one who saves. 
So the message and the greatness of the gospel, like if I were to say just one thing, what the greatness of the gospel is, it's not just that it saves us, but it's that it reminds me I don't have to be perfect, right? I wanna be, and, and the Holy Spirit is doing a work in all of us, but I don't have to be perfect. And when I sin and when I mess up, God's still with me. I am still saved, and I am still righteous, because it's not me, it's Jesus who is righteous. So why don't we stand together, we're gonna sing in response. Thanks for joining us. We pray you feel encouraged by this word. We would love to hear from you, so why not connect with us via the website at lifechurchhome.com or on our socials at Life Church Home. Have a blessed week and we'll see you soon.